Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, and Psalm 119, the whole thing. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Only verses 1 through 8. And the word of the Lord reads this way. And Jesus came in and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And now Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I will not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. This is the word of the Lord, and if you are thankful for it this morning, join me in saying, thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, Father, grant us humility, ears to hear, and Father, give us, give us the grace to walk uh, accordingly in response. By repentance and faith, in the name of your son, Jesus, amen. Amen. Uh, once again, as we continue, um, today we'll, it's going to be a largely a topical sermon, um, meaning uh, we're not going to really dance in one particular passage. We're going to kind of dance around in multiple ones. If you want to write down that Matthew 28 and that Psalm 119, we're also going to be in Colossians chapter 2. Um, that'll be another primary text for this morning, uh, the first few verses a little bit in First Timothy, a little bit in Titus, and anyways, we'll we'll be dancing around. That's not our, our typical um, uh, way of doing things. Um, we'll be getting back to passage by passage exposition here in just a few, just a couple weeks. Um, but for this morning, we're going to continue our series called Christ the Lord, which is really our, our yearly series where we get a chance to to take a look at or to re uh, to take a an aspect of our church and and vision and where we believe the Lord uh, wants us to go according to his scriptures, uh, take a time to maybe re-emphasize something that maybe we've lost sight of or to course correct a little bit or uh, lots of different um, purposes. For this year, we've decided to work through uh, a new term for us called our distinctives. And our distinctives are certainly things that set us apart from the world but probably the, the bigger purpose is, in, in our distinctives is really what sets us apart from other churches, uh, even other Reformed churches. So it's not us saying, let I me mean, be clear, that, that we're a church and all the rest are not. That is certainly not the intention. We, we live in a culture that if you don't embrace everything about everyone, then you're against everything about that person. Uh, and that's not what we're trying to say. We're not, but we're also not after androgyny, where everything looks the same. It's okay for us to say, in these ways we are different. In these ways, 
we might be the circle in the group of rectangles. Now, the conviction of, of your elders has always been, even since the founding of the churches that make up Christ the Lord, has always been to see all of Christ work itself out in all of our lives. In the earlier days of our ministry as a church, we spoke in terms often of working out your salvation and seeing all of life renovated for the glory of God, or seeing victory in all of the Christian life according to Christ and His Word. We don't earn salvation, just to reiterate it, but if it's real, if our salvation is real, then it will continue to be worked out until the day we meet Jesus where it will be completed. And today, I introduce another distinctive and a couple new terms we're talking about the same thing, but with some, maybe some new language and hopefully some more helpful language that we can kind of build a definition around that will help us talk about what this looks like. We've already heard the phrase a couple weeks ago, all of Christ for all of life. That term doesn't originate with us, but that's a really helpful phrase that we want all of Christ and we want to see how all of Christ applies to all of life. But we've talked about that and how there's a whole lot more to Jesus than just the gentle and lowly Jesus that our culture worships right now, and that his lordship expands well beyond just your quiet time and whether or not you cuss or get tattoos. But it's all of Christ for all of life. Well, today we're going to really just move that ball forward. How do we know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all? We're going to move that ball forward down the field just a little bit further with this distinctive. The distinctive is this, theological and cultural maximalism. Theological and cultural maximalism. If you, if you think that's a, a, a big word, um, for most of us, we've left the third, the third grade, hopefully. Theological and cultural maximalism. Theological, here's what we mean by theological, just simply this, the study of God and his creation accordingly. It's the study of God and, and his creation. Cultural, meaning the, meaning the workings out of that theology. It's the, kind of the tangible uh, expression of that theology. And maximalism, doing that to its fullest. Maximizing, going as far as we can, filling it to the brim, filling the cup, the bucket, all the way to the brim. Now, this term certainly does not originate from us. It originates from a, a pastor and singer-songwriter and some conversations um, that have been encouraging between them and some of their leaders. Um, have had a profound impact on our elders and on this sermon in particular. Um, they use, in this conversation with these leaders, they use this analogy that I'm going to, really, I'm going to drive through um, that I found is helpful. I'm going to drive through this entire sermon. You're going to hear me reference this multiple times. And it's really the analogy of the old estates or castles and, and kingdoms like those of the, made popular by the, the famous um, Downton Abbey. Uh, it's, it's known, or what, uh, where the actual estate is called the High Clare Castle. The Highclere Castle, or the estate known or represented in the, the show Downton Abbey, was made up of 
five to 6,000 acres. I don't know if that computes to you, but a football field is about an acre approximately. The estate house was made up of 300 rooms and roughly 30,000 square feet. I don't know how big your house is. Mine's 1450 plus a basement, okay? Uh, I do not have 300 rooms. Some days it feels like I have three. Uh, that might be because there's five kids in that 1450. Uh, gorgeous homes with dozens of servants, valets, footmen, chefs, ladies' maids, formal dinners and walkthroughs, all handed down to the next generation after generation, usually through the firstborn child or the heir or the heiress of the estate. Now, the way those estates worked is that the surrounding thousands of acres of land was owned and managed by the estate owner or the heir or the heiress. And all the people there around that lived in those lands usually rented and worked the land. And the profits from the land would go to the estate owners or the estate owner usually. And the land workers then made a living and were supported. And You see, the surrounding land served the house center, and the house center served the surrounding land. They worked together. But then what happened was over time, many of these estates made poor choices, whether it's the squandering of money or poor management of the land leading to low profits. And so they would in times of need, then sell off portions of the estate. You know, what's the big deal with losing 50 acres here or 100 acres there? And eventually, with many of these estates, they had little to no land around them to turn a profit. To quote, small compromises, small retreats, can eat away the grandness of the estate until it's eventually lost. This is true of the current church landscape and a distinction that I think we need to make, that our elders believe we need to make. If the gospel is the house center, it supports the surrounding doctrines. However, the surrounding doctrines support the gospel house center. They work in tandem. They are two sides, two necessary sides of the same coin. See, the reality is if you lose the gospel center, then the surrounding is dead immediately. You lose the house, the surrounding lands are lost immediately. But equally true is if you lose the surrounding doctrines, even if it's just one at a time or a little bit at a time, you will eventually lose the center as well. And that is the path of the church in our day. What we would call theological minimalism. In other words, the church in our day, and for the past number of decades, has said, all that's important is that we get the gospel right, everything else will be fine. And now the reality is, is most churches have lost the gospel, or are about to lose the gospel. The surrounding land is now owned by the pagans, 
The servants have all gotten jobs at the woke circus. The grass around the house is on fire. And the house is quickly becoming remodeled into a social ideological brothel with one room in the back labeled prayer chapel. That's the landscape that we sit in the midst of. If we lose the surrounding land, we will lose the gospel. We've pulled our troops as a church in our culture out of the surrounding lands and just said all that matters, as long as we get the gospel here, we're good. But we, what we've lost or what we don't realize is that theological minimalism leads to cultural minimalism. I'm going to define that and, 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 and flesh that out. But let's go to Colossians chapter 2, 1 through 4. Colossians 2, 1 through 4. Paul. And remember, this is on the heels of Colossians 1, which is the preeminence of Christ over everything, right? The lordship, the sovereignty, Jesus is the point of it all. And now Paul says in chapter 2, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love. Now listen to this. To reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures and wisdom of knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Now Paul's aim, Paul's desire for the church in Colossae and for us, is that we would reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. He doesn't say which is the gospel, which is Christ, all that there is in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Again, he just talked about Christ as preeminent over all things. What is his picture here? We're using the term to describe what Paul's talking about here is theological maximalism, that there's more than just the house. It's more than just the center. It's the entire estate that matters. All of it. More on that in a bit. But for now, what happens when we settle for theological minimalism? According to Paul, if he's painting this picture of this maximalistic understanding of all the riches and all the glory of Christ, all of it, what's the, what, if you don't have that, what's the outcome? It's in verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with what? Plausible arguments. What's he saying? He's saying if you lose the arguments at any point in the estate, eventually you're going to get swept away. You'll lose the house. You'll stray ultimately from the faith. So what's the conclusion? Is that you need the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are found in Christ in order to keep the estate, the whole thing, solid. 
That's why the Lord tells Joshua, if you remember back from our series through Joshua, don't swerve to the left, don't swerve to the right. Why? As he's about to go into uh, the promised land and build the estate, as he's about to take the thousands and thousands of acres and build God's kingdom in his chosen land. He says, don't swerve to the left or to the right. He doesn't say, hey, Joshua, just make sure you believe in Jesus tomorrow. He tells him, remember it all. Don't swerve to the left or the right on anything I've said. Keep it all. So what is theological minimalism? Let's keep fleshing this out. I think theological minimalism in our context is usually a good desire gone bad. We want to rally all Christians together in order to get something done. And so we ask the question, what's the least we need to agree on to accomplish this? What's the minimum so that we can all just be friends? I think this oftentimes comes from a response to, our, to the culture around us, meaning because the culture is doing something bad, we need to rally around these truths. And so what's the minimum we can kind of grab a hold of so that we can all be happy and together? But the problem is if you become too focused on those terms or those items, our tendency is to neglect everything else. We have to be concerned about the whole picture. For the past couple decades, there's been a, a movement called the gospel-centered movement. And listen, I, I'm not, not picking on them nor the people who started the gospel-centered movement. It's not all bad by, by any means. Lots of good things in that. In many ways, it was a response to the pragmatism of the 80s and the 90s, the, what was called the church growth movement. It kind of started with Rick Warren and Bill Hybels and and those guys, and again, not everything in that's terrible and evil, but it was kind of a response to this pragmatism that said, essentially, just come, and we'll tell you how to have a good life, and we'll do whatever it takes to get people to come in, and, and then commence fog machines and strobe lights and, you know, the big band and all that stuff. However, the result, practically, this was not the intention at least, I, I don't think it's the intention. The result has been leaving the surrounding lands unguarded. It's just, that's not a gospel issue. That's not a gospel issue. Just hear that all the time for the past couple of decades. That's not a gospel issue. And the result has been leaving the surrounding lands unguarded. Things like the surrounding land, things like sufficiency of Scripture, or a biblical anthropology or, or view of mankind or a a biblical view on the role of the government, or a biblical view on the role of the family and education and health, or a biblical view of justice, of authority, or of grace even. We've left these things unguarded, left them to the side. What's the danger when these things are left unguarded? Things like, again, relegating important terms as unimportant. Listen, when you relegate the Christian life to just a few important things, then all of a sudden what the Bible has to say about everything else becomes unimportant. Therefore, the sufficiency of Scripture becomes unimportant. Well, what happens when the sufficiency of Scripture becomes unimportant, like we talked about last week? Well, then you end up with a bunch of people who don't know the Bible and who wouldn't know how to apply it if they did. What else is a danger? 
it's, it is quite possible that you could talk a lot about really important items like the atonement or the resurrection or justification, but then leave unguarded things like how would the Bible instruct your neighbor in how to deal with their terrible three-year-old? Listen, if you don't parent that terrible three-year-old well, he or she may not have ears to hear the atonement. Or, but what are you supposed to do about the pride display at the local library? Or how do you deal with things like COVID or transgenderism? Part of the danger here, too, is that we get swallowed up by the thorns and the thistles around us. We get deluded with plausible arguments and find ourselves one day saying that whatever ideology that our world is promoting is the same as the gospel. All because it slowly eroded we slowly let be eroded the things surrounding the estate, the, the gospel, the house center. Listen, I've seen so many people in 20 years of ministry be swallowed up by a plausible argument. It made sense in the moment. And that foolish thing that made sense in the moment, now all of a sudden it was a, it was a shorter leap to the next foolish thing that seemed plausible in the moment. Functionally, this is how I think, again, what's the danger? I think functionally, this is how many of us live, even in the church, even in this room, that we treat every week like, well, I made it through still believing Jesus is my Savior. Woohoo! thank goodness. You know, while wiping the sweat from our foreheads. I'm good, you say. At least, at least Jesus is at the center. That's theological minimalism. All the while, the edge of the estates are being overran by worldliness in our lives. It won't stop there. Satan doesn't stop his assault at the surrounding edges of the estate of your soul. And he rarely goes at the very center, practically. He's going to work from the edges and make his way in. Another danger is that it it impoverishes God's people. Theological minimalism impoverishes God's people. Again, look at Paul's language. To reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Listen, you and I are impoverished when we don't have a rich theology of things like manhood or womanhood or parenting or emotions or work or dominion. And we say, but at least I know Jesus is the way to happiness. I mean, the the way to heaven. And when we don't have the richness that Paul is talking about here, we will be deluded with plausible arguments that leads to cultural syncretism. I'm going to define that. 
but it leads to cultural syncretism. Theological minimalism leads to cultural syncretism. Go read a, a passage like Romans 12 too. It says that, that there is this perfect will of God and that his people can indeed discern it, which also means we ought to discern it. There is the will, there is something to be had, and that it can be had by God's grace, which means we ought to. So the question isn't, the question isn't for each of us, will you have a belief set that governs the furthest reaches of your life? The question is, what belief set will govern the furthest reaches of your life? And if your church doesn't teach you, and if you don't work hard to know yourself, then you will take the culture's belief set, and it will govern the furthest reaches of your life. I would encourage you this week, Look to the furthest reaches of your life and see what is governing how you act there. Send some troops, send some servants in your soul to the furthest parts of the land. This is the reality is that most of us don't live our lives talking about the, the components of the gospel all day long. Things like the atonement or the resurrection. Most of us spend our days working the surrounding land, writing computer codes, parenting children, giving spankings, making meals, cutting grass, talking to your spouse across the bed, dinner time with the kids. That's where we live life. Now, certainly the gospel is a part of that, right? We're not denying that the gospel works itself out in that. So what we're saying, though, is we have to actually work the gospel out in all of that. We live life in the surrounding fields of manhood and womanhood, father, mother, citizen, worker, neighbor. And if we don't learn how to do those things in a Christianly way, if what the Bible says doesn't come out our fingertips, then eventually we will lose the house or the gospel at the center. Whether that's in the more macrocosm of the, of the church as a whole and our culture and the church uh, in the world, or if it's just in our own personal lives and in our own households, those microchasms. What happens is we live some of our life under the lordship of Jesus and other parts of our life under the lordship of Satan. That's called cultural syncretism. We've taken and adopted the way the world thinks and lives and married that. You're syncing them together. Syncretism. But not only does theological minimalism lead to cultural syncretism, it also leads to antinomianism. Anti again, I know, big words. Antinomianism is essentially hatred for the law. It's a rejection of God's law. It's kind of the law of our land in most churches today is a hatred for the law, specifically the law of God. Did my microphone just go out? There we go. They say, it's all grace, and there's no purpose for the law. Uh, this, this class or this group of people tend to love to accuse others of being legalistic, while not realizing that antinomianism is just another form of legalism. It's just your law instead of God's law. And here's what happens. 
practically, and I'm going to, practically, you can preach, or a church can teach, or you can speak to a brother or sister all you want about how awesome Jesus is, or how beautiful the house is. But as soon as you start telling people how to apply it, how to move into the further reaches of life, all of a sudden, you're labeled something like a legalist. According to that standard, if that's what legalism is, is is actually pressing theology into the culture, meaning the culture of your heart, your mind, your hands, your household, that kind of, that culture, then, then according to that standard, God's a legalist as well. Passages like Paul, when he writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy 16, 13, he says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all you do be done in love. Listen, he tells men to act strong, to be strong, to stand firm, to be watchful. I don't say, I don't see, be passive in there, be weak, be pathetic, or act like women. That's not what he tells them to do. Titus 2, verse 3, the second part through 5, the older women are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may be, that the word of God may not be reviled. He, Paul has no fear of working the theology into the culture, here particularly of the household. And he's not afraid to say, look, for you ladies and for you men, this is what it looks like. For the record, I, I just realized in that last couple statements ago, I said it may have appeared as though I was equivalating weak, passive with being a woman. I was not doing that. That, did not, that rolled off the tongue, uh, maybe in an unhelpful way to some of you, so... Back to this. And the anti-law person says, that's too legalistic. And I would ask, well, by what standard? By your standard? By your law? Listen, we think the choice is between God's law and grace. That's not true. The two choices are between God's law or your law. Because God's law is a part of his grace. Legalism is not preaching and following the law. Legalism is doing that while thinking you can make yourself righteous before God apart from Jesus. That's legalism. Listen, first Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, uses it rightly. He goes on, again, go read 1 Timothy 1 later. He goes on to list a bunch of sins. After he says that, if we use it lawfully, he then goes on to list a bunch of sins and then says this phrase, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. So he lists a bunch of sins, like don't do these things. The law is helpful here. Don't do these things and don't do anything else that is contrary to sound doctrine. Meaning, all that God has said, his definition of what is right and good for the world, for his creation. So you see what he's doing? He's saying God's law on everything, a.k.a. sound doctrine, goes hand in hand with the gospel. 
But when you minimize theology to just the gospel, you will give up the surrounding land. Specifically, what tends to get chucked very quickly is God's law. And when you do that, your culture will not, cannot look maximally Christian. It will begin to look like a pagan culture. So let's talk about the other side of this coin. Theological maximalism leads to cultural maximalism. Let's go back to read Colossians 2, 1 through 4 again. In verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that you may that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. We're going to focus more on two and three. So what is it? What is theological maximalism? We'll give you a definition, at least our working definition. Let me quote. The process of studying all of Scripture, applying it to all of life, and really believing that Christ is Lord over it all. End quote. The process of studying all of Scripture, applying it to all of life, and really believing that Christ is Lord over it all. Paul says to to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, meaning all of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, not some, not just what's necessary for today, but all the riches all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. We believe that the scriptures apply to all of life because Jesus is Lord over all of life and has spoken for all of life. See, theological maximalism, again, leads to cultural maximalism. Let me put that in different words. Right believing leads to right living. Right believing leads to right living. Again, back to that Romans 12 passage. The mind transformed leads to discerning God's perfect will. All of Christ for all of life. I think we have to understand that the doctrine of salvation holistically encompasses much more than what we tend to relegate it to. Let me quote. The entire doctrine of who saves... Or, 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 sorry, the doctrine of salvation is the entire doctrine of who saves, who he saves, and to what end. He saves them so they can actually be brought to glory in Christ and establish a new humanity in Christ. Let me say that again. It's the entire doctrine of who saves, that being the Lord, who he saves, his chosen people, and to what end. He saves them so they can actually be brought to glory in Christ and establish a new humanity in Christ. This is where we go so terribly wrong. We think salvation is just about us getting into the house. Now again, without the house, the land will die. But even though our residence is in the house, we don't live there 24-7. We go to the furthest reaches of the estate. You say, well, how, how, do I, how do I do that? How do I, how do I look at the estate as a whole? Uh, that's a practical advice, but a, a couple that I was reminded of is 
having robust confessions like the London Baptist Confession or the Westminster Confession, having catechisms, those things help take in the scope and the breadth of the Scriptures and keep us with it all, focusing on every part of the land and not just one little part. Again, even if we're not careful, we can let the, what is the popular things in the culture right now rule what we say and what we focus on, and we leave the other things unguarded. That's a danger. That's part of why we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. It helps us keep us from just responding to, to the fires that Satan keeps putting, keeps starting. And the words of another pastor, so we can go start our own fires, Instead of always playing fireman for what Satan's doing. Having robust confessions, studying those, using these tools to help us stay focused on the entire estate and not just one corner of the estate. Listen, just, just to show you a bit from the scriptures here, particularly Philippians 2, 12 through 13, he says this, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, he says this phrase, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But that particular phrase, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, that's what Paul is talking about here, that yet you're going to leave the house And you're going to have to work out your salvation. Again, the house is still a part of the estate. You're not neglecting. We still believe that the gospel was for the day of salvation, and it's for working out your salvation. You don't graduate on from the gospel. But you do have to graduate into working the gospel out into everyday life. That's what Paul is talking about. When you leave the house, work out your salvation. Bring the scriptures to bear on everything you do. Let's talk about this idea of every good work. Every good work. In 2 Timothy, we talked about this passage last week, 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, right? Maximal in his theological and his application of it, equipped for every good work, for every good work. I think, whether intentional or not, in our current church landscape, people are being told all that matters is that you have a nice quiet time, make sure you attend church, and play nice at work and on social media. And in the process, we've maybe unintentionally said, that nothing else really matters that much. But again, the reality is most of us don't live our lives in the house at the center of the estate. We live each day three miles away with a baby bottle or a plow in our hands. And what we tend to say to people is that those things don't matter that much. Just make sure you had a quiet time. Everything else will be fine. But we're saying those things matter too. We're saying the the hand, the plow in your hand matters. We're saying the baby bottle in your hand matters, and the way you do it matters, and that we have wisdom and instruction that's found in Christ in how to do all of those things in a Christianly way for the kingdom of God that brings glory to him and good to us and good to our neighbors. How? Because Jesus is all wisdom and knowledge. Where is that for us to see? 
in the scriptures. The center of the estate is Jesus. The house has all the wisdom and all the knowledge in God's kingdom. It has all the wisdom and knowledge it needs to govern the surrounding property that it governs. The right way to use the land, the right tools to use on the land, who should be working which roles, when should you let the land rest or lay fallow, when should you rest. Knowledge and wisdom are found in Christ. Listen, knowledge is the knowing of all things. The knowing of all things is found in Christ. He's the Logos. He is the unifying reality of all creation. He tells us what everything else means. Wisdom is knowing what to do with all those things. Wisdom is knowing what to do with that knowledge. Do you see, you see this? In Christ is all knowledge and what to do with that knowledge is all found in the house center whose name is Jesus. You see, you need knowledge and wisdom in order to do every good work. And Paul's telling us that that's found in the Holy Scriptures. That it is profitable. That it will be successful. That it is good for the equipping of God's people for all, for every good work. Listen, again, I said this last week. If you're confused or don't know what to do in a situation, it's either because you've not studied the scriptures enough or because you're trying to uh, force the scriptures to say or speak on something that you have actual freedom to live in. That actually you could choose A or B. The scriptures don't speak to choosing A or B. It speaks to how you get to that decision and it speaks to how you should live in either decision that you make. Listen, you and I need sermons and teachings. We need to study the scriptures and know things beyond general application. Like when, when Paul says, husbands, love your wife. What does that love look like? What's it look like? You should have a robust understanding of what that looks like. What's it look like to lay your life down for her? You should have a theology of that. If not, your marriage, your household will be impoverished. Or how about singles? What's it look like to be a faithful employee? What does that look like to be a good worker in God's kingdom who happens to be paid by someone who may not even worship God? What does that look like? You should have a robust theology of what that looks like. You know, in part, it looks like working your tail off for God's kingdom, loving your employer, but also not neglecting other things. Husbands, as you love your wives, it doesn't mean, laying your life down for does not mean letting her have her way, nor does it mean you getting your way. It means it's God's way. So you better know God's way. 
You see, when we start talking about theological maximalism, it will lead to a cultural maximalism. So what does what it looks like? It looks like cultural maximalism. I want to flesh that out for us as we land this plane. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in what? The law of the Lord, yes. And on his law he meditates day and night. Now verse 3, he is like what? A tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. That means it's living properly and producing the right fruit. And its leaves don't wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Wow! Then he does a juxtaposition here. He contrasts this in verse 4 with something else. But the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We think about a a definition of culture, a cultural maximalism. So when you look at a culture, what we're really talking about is, is you can tell by the doings of a culture what they worship. Someone said this in getting at a definition of culture. It's the way of life for an entire society. It's the way of life for an entire society. Listen, you can tell what a group worships by their culture, by the way of life, by what they do with their time, what they talk about without prompting, the joy or the bitterness they exude, what they do behind a computer screen, what they're not allowed to talk about, what they always talk about, by the fruit on the ground around them, by their lawn being on fire, by the fruit that they try to tape on. Meaning paste on, that's fake. But you can also think of a culture in more of a microcosm. The, the culture of our emotions, the culture of your mind, the culture of the household, the culture of your church. We, when we seek, look at verse 1. But his delight, I'm sorry, verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. We're just calling that theological maximalism. That's what David is speaking of here. Delighting in the law, meditating on the Lord day and night. And when that happens, your culture will be like a tree planted by streams of water, producing fruit and prospering. Listen, we're not talking about being a a legalist who runs around making sure everyone is keeping their man-made rules. We're talking about a culture of people who are so saturated with the Bible that their solid theology comes out of every pore of their body. When the surrounding area is managed well, the estate will flourish It'll be like a tree planted by water, the whole thing. Again, the picture here is one who is delighting in the law of the Lord, or in other words, they're delighting in who God is, 
and what his expectations are. All of them. And those people are firmly planted. They will flourish. Again, just a caveat again, not to earn their salvation, but to work because of their salvation. Because of the gift of the gospel, the house at the center. So when you are pursuing theological maximalism, you will experience cultural maximalism, a maximally Christian culture. A maximally Christian culture in your mind. Imagine what that could be like. Just imagine if your mind was maximally Christian. What if your emotions were flowing out of a mind and a heart that was maximally Christian, that was driven by a theological maximalism? Listen, as your pastor, I long for those things for you. Your elders long for those things. There is so much freedom in a mind that is maximally Christian. There's so much freedom and so much joy in a household that is maximally Christian. There is so much joy and so much freedom and flourishing like a tree planted by streams of water that bears fruit and prospers. And a church that is maximally Christian. You see, cultural maximalism takes serious the mission of God. The mission of God. Matthew 28, 20, the first verse we read. Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So this is his commission to the disciples. Go teach them all that I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The great commission, the mission of God, to make disciples of all nations and fill the earth with the glory of God. Do you actually believe that's going to happen? Just, do you actually believe that's going to happen? Do you believe the earth will one day be filled with the glory of God through his image bearers by people who love and follow Jesus Christ? Or is this plan in Matthew 28 going to fail? I mean, that's the other option. I believe, your elders believe, it's going to be successful. Jesus says, observe all that I have commanded you. What's he saying? All that I've said is important for all of my people. Why? Because we believe that Christ has ransomed us from the kingdom of death. Right? The reality is, is that you and I, apart from God's grace, bring death everywhere we go. You don't have to look far to see this, meaning you could probably see evidences of this at lunch today. Be on the lookout for it. We bring death. But because Christ the Lord has come, he's forgiven sin. He has forgiven our sin and saved us from death. Right? Amen? Amen. That's the gospel house center. 
But we don't stop there. Why? Because the, the gospel has also given us new birth and began recreation. Everything being made a footstool to Christ. All of his people being made into the image of Christ. Being brought to mature manhood as Paul speaks of it. Jesus is creating a new humanity into his perfect image and obedience. We're not just waiting for a future hope that we just get by here and there until we get to that. Certainly, that is what drives us. We see the writing on the wall. We see the end result, and we're moving towards that. But there are things to do now. We actually want people to live out their new humanity really, truly, and fully right now in everything they do. We need to move on from settling for, well, at least I still believe the gospel today. And work towards a theology that comes out our fingertips. Listen, there is Christian music, Christian work, Christian parenting, Christian painting, Christian gardening, Christian thoughts, Christian crying, Christian driving, etc. And it's all magnificent, and it's all under the lordship of Jesus, and it all displays his great glory. We need men leading their households to be glorious and amazing. We need women working their homes to be beautiful and life-giving. We need church leaders who equip Christians to live at the edges, the furthest edges of the estate. We need Christian parties that are full of the joy of the Lord. We need discipleship groups exploding with joyful repentance and life change. And we need workers at their employers to be faithful, bold, and true. God's people should be loving, joyful, peaceful, conquering chaos, patient, bold, kind, generous, beauty-making, faithful, gentle, powerful, yet self-controlled, life-giving, intolerant of sin, provocative, content, order-establishing, humble, and jovial. If we believe that we need to know and teach all that Jesus commands then we will be theological maximalists. And then our culture in our minds, in our household, in our church, and eventually our world will be maximally Christian. So where do we start? Where do we start? It's real simple. Repentance and faith. It's back to the center. Repentance and faith. We do that as we know, love, and obey all of Jesus as Lord over all of creation. Theological maximalism will lead to cultural maximalism, a group of people, a church that exudes the character of our living, gracious, merciful, and just God. It will be a culture of people that truly loves God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and loves their neighbor as themselves. Let's pray. Father, may this huge, grand vision for your people be true of this little collection of your people. I believe it is possible because the word is sufficient 
because your gospel is effective and because your Holy Spirit has been sent to lead us. Father, I pray that each one of us would believe that this is possible, that we would set aside all the trivial things that we place our hope in, that we would cast off the the governing sets of beliefs that are from our world, that we would move beyond simply, well, at least I understand the gospel, that we would seek to have a rich, theologically maximal understanding of all the lands that surround the estate. That our estates, the little ones we live in, the ones that are intangible in our minds, the physical around us, the, the church, that it would display the great glory of our good God. Father, I ask all these things for your name's sake. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen.